Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. My name is Tim Coe and today on the podcast my guest is Richard Lowe. Welcome Richard. Hi Tim. Um, Tell us, Richard, you're an immunologist and an allergy specialist. Uh, Tell us a bit more about yourself. Uh, I'm a paediatric immunologist. Uh, I work uh, in Perth. Uh, and I see children uh, with allergies and immune problems. I'm an ex-president of the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, which is the premier professional group representing immunologists in Australia. And I have the pleasure of co-chairing something called the National Allergy Strategy, uh, which is uh, essentially trying to improve the care and quality of life of Australians with allergic diseases. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard. So today, this episode, we're going to focus on anaphylaxis, a really important issue. Mm-hmm. Um, for me and in my practice, it's been a very busy few weeks uh, with school going to back, going back. So I've been filling out the uh, ASCIA anaphylaxis plans left, right and centre, um, people booking in to, to get them filled at the start of the year. Um, so when we see a child with anaphylaxis and they come in for a checkup. What sort of things should we be asking about and what should we be checking? Okay. It's uh, very important uh, that uh, the ASCANAFLEXIS action plans are reviewed yearly. Uh, children can outgrow uh, their food allergies and acquire new allergies. So it's important uh, to ask them, you know, have you had reactions, uh, any new foods, anything else uh, that may have caused uh, reactions that uh, uh, are not previously known. Uh, the other thing is uh, if they've got an anaphylaxis action plan, they have an adrenaline auto-injector. In Australia, we currently have only one device called the EpiPen. So it's important uh, that um, they know how to use the EpiPen. So the only way to know whether they know how to use it is to have a trainer device. I think every GP should have a trainer device and when they fill out the action plan, get the trainer device and get the parent or if the child is old enough uh, to demonstrate that they can uh, actually know how to use the device. The other thing is also to know when to use it. So to go through the action plan and say, you know, when would you give it and uh, what do you do after you give it. A lot of people uh, think that um, they give it if they've got severe um, difficulty in breathing or significant swelling in the tongue. It's important when you look at the action plan, if you've got any trouble breathing or you've got any throat swelling or any swelling of the tongue, they should administer the EpiPen early. We want it given so early that we actually advise, if in doubt, give it. So an example I say to uh, patients and their parents, if you're going to call an ambulance, give the EpiPen first before you call the ambulance. Uh, It's also important uh, to make sure that uh, they have the right dose uh, of the EpiPen. There are two doses, the EpiPen 150 and the EpiPen 300. And in Australia, we recommend that when the patient's over 20 kilograms, to change across to the EpiPen 300. Uh, The reason is the EpiPen 150 is designed for 15 kilogram, um, and if you're 20 or 25 kilograms, you get an underdose with the EpiPen 150. For life-threatening condition, we prefer an overdose Mm. rather than an underdose. Yeah, I mean, adrenaline's really pretty safe for the most part, especially if it's administered as an EpiPen. So what you're saying is use it and use it early if you need to and have a low threshold to use uh, it. Definitely. And there is no absolute contraindication 
for the EpiPen. Mm. So for those who see older patients who have had perhaps uh, heart attacks, uh, the stress of anaphylaxis on the heart is way, way higher than giving an EpiPen. So somebody, even if they've had uh, a heart attack, if they're having anaphylaxis, the advice mm. still is to administer the EpiPen. Mm. And uh, something we were discussing before was the, the recommendation that patients should remain sitting after using an EpiPen. A lot mm. of people wouldn't be aware of that, that you can, there's actually a risk of standing up and a, a risk of, of basically shock, basically. Yes. In the new anaphylaxis action plan, we've actually stressed it, saying we prefer patients to lie down. Uh, that helps uh, blood return uh, to the heart. But if you've got trouble breathing, then sitting up is uh, certainly more comfortable. Um, we've had uh, um, patients who have been administered the EpiPen who are doing really well and then they walk to the ambulance and they collapse and what happens is that uh, the blood drains from the heart to the feet. Cardiologists call that the empty ventricle syndrome or pulseless electrical activity and unfortunately there have been a number of deaths overseas that despite CPR when the patients collapse there's no blood in the heart for them to pump and uh, patients have unfortunately died uh, because they've been uh, stood up and walked uh, to the ambulance or to the medical facility. Mm. So it's very, very important. Yeah, look, I'm sure a lot of GPs wouldn't be aware of that recommendation. And, uh, you know, it's another thing to remind patients of uh, as you go through their plan. Yes. The other thing also uh, through the plan is um, in pa patients with uh, a risk of anaphylaxis often have asthma. Mm. So in the plan now, we're saying that if a patient acutely wheezes um, and there's uncertainty whether this is anaphylaxis or asthma, give the EpiPen. Because the EpiPen helps both asthma and anaphylaxis, but a bronchodilator may not help anaphylaxis and will not if there is a, a cardiovascular compromise. So if in doubt, in acute onset wheezing in a patient with asthma, give the EpiPen first and then the bronchodilator. So that's something new as well. Yeah, I noticed that's now on the very bottom section of the of the ASCII plan, which is great. So it's clear to everyone yeah. um, how to manage wheeze in the setting of a anaphylactic reaction. So that's great. So allergies are a really interesting topic. I mean, we I think we deal with a lot of nut allergies now, and allergies and food allergies seem to be becoming more prevalent. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's definitely increasing. There are studies now coming up from Victoria uh, that demonstrate one in 10 infants under 12 months of age have documented food allergies. So documented is actually uh, patients being given the food in a controlled environment and actually uh, finding that they react. Because a lot of times we know that patients who are intolerant to foods, they may say I'm allergic when it's not true. But 10% now of infants born in Australia have documented food allergies. We worry about nuts, uh, but uh, egg and cow's milk uh, are much more common uh, than nuts. The problem with nuts is they tend to be lifelong, and uh, certainly more fatalities occur with peanut and tree nuts than there are with cow's milk and egg. So you mentioned that, that uh, nuts tend to carry on. Yeah. What percentage of kids will drop off with that allergy so about one in five children will yeah. outgrow their peanut and tree nut allergy but 80 percent don't mm. the difficulty we face is trying to predict who will mm. outgrow and uh, uh, we base it on history we base it on the size of skin test 
and sometimes the blood test levels, the IgE um, specific IgE antibody. But ultimately, we bring these children to hospitals and we do a nut challenge. So giving them nuts in a controlled environment. And some patients will react um, and anaphylax, but at least it's in a controlled environment. And Richard, I notice Asian children are more likely to, to have food allergy. Any reason why? Or? Um, that's uh, definitely um, documented and published now. So if uh, Asian parents who have children in Asia have lower uh, risk of allergies, same parents, so it can't be a change in the genes, but the next child born in Australia have a uh, high risk of allergies, even higher uh, than uh, Australian children. So are we talking, when we say allergies, are we talking food allergy or are we talking, you know, uh, atopy? Uh, we're talking atopy, so yeah. food allergies. Probably the children with the worst eczema uh, that I see are often Chinese um, children or Indian children. Uh, so eczema, uh, allergic rhinitis, there's something not good about Australian environment in terms of allergies. Uh, and there are lo- lots of theories about why. So here's an interesting one. So if, you, if you, you're of Asian heritage and you've got eczema, say, mm-hmm. if you go back to Asia on holiday, will, will, that, will your eczema improve? Um, probably uh, not. We've talked about uh, Australians uh, talking about perhaps maybe they should go overseas and have their child there. <laughs> so there is uh, looking at some studies uh, about expatriate um, and looking at your children born there, but uh, those studies haven't been published. So um, the reverse, whether you know if you uh, are atopic, uh, an Australian atopic couple, and you have a child overseas in a developing country, will that reduce uh, your risk of algae in the child? And it may, but we don't have the data yet. Yeah, that's really. I mean, I've I've often observed that Asian kids will have high rates of of eczema in particular, and. Um, you, you know, you, you meet people who, they, they're born in Asia and they'll come to Australia and, and find their eczema flares, particularly with the cool weather, they have their steatotic eczema, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, I've often wondered, is that just the humidity and um, the amount that you sweat that actually has an effect on, on eczema or is it, you know, all the dry climate in Australia? Um, it's probably a combination. Some families find when they go to Asian countries, the eczema improves, but... Um, they're often in air-conditioned um, right. houses yeah. and environments, they're sweating less. And people are not aware that in air-conditioned rooms, it's dry. Dust might actually doesn't survive uh, in very dry conditions. So if you have your air conditioner on 24 hours a day uh, and it's a reverse cycle, it's very dry mm-hmm. uh, and dust mite population is actually very low. So. Dust mite can aggravate eczema. The feces of the dust mite, when it goes onto the eczema skin, can actually irritate it. So that's possibly one reason. And sometimes um, when you go overseas, you are on the beach, in the swimming pool, in the sun, and we know sometimes salt water uh, chlorine improves, but some patients actually worsen. So it's not to, uh, I tell families not to move to countries hoping that they are allergies improve because they often say, should I move somewhere else? And I say, well, you might not have dust mite allergy, but if you move to New York, you might develop cockroach allergy if you're in an old apartment and there's a high population of cockroaches. So you really can't win, unfortunately, can you? We don't know enough. That's the problem to give uh, clear advice there. 
So let's um, continue the discussion about allergenic foods. Um, there seems to be changing opinions about exposing young children to, to potentially allergenic foods. Yes. Um, and, and there's also discussion about when pregnant women should have allergenic foods. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give firstly about young children and then pregnant women? Uh, in terms of young children, uh, a few years ago we talked about delayed introduction of allergenic foods like egg and peanut. And the advice uh, is wrong. Mm -hmm. Delaying introduction of a certain peanut in uh, at-risk uh, children. So these are children uh, whose parents have allergies and with uh, siblings with allergies actually increases the risk of these children developing peanut allergy. So there's a pivotal study called LEAP where they introduce peanut in young uh, infants, so around four to 11 months of age. And they found that it reduced peanut algae in the high-risk children by up to 80%. Goodness me. So the advice now is that when your child is ready to take solids around four months of age to introduce um, solids. And we like uh, foods like peanut protein, not peanuts, which are foreign bodies, but uh, peanut butter uh, egg uh, introduced from around four months of age and before 11 months of age. Mm. So that's advice available on the ASCIA uh, website, uh, www.allergy.org.au. Uh, there are infant feeding and prevention of uh, uh, allergy guidelines there. And what about the pregnant? Uh, pregnant women and the, the exposure of foods? Uh, the data uh, for pregnant women and breastfeeding women is that um, you shouldn't alter uh, what you eat. So the British uh, a few years ago recommended trying to stop eating peanut when you're pregnant and breastfeeding. One, it didn't uh, reduce peanut algae and it may have also increased uh, the peanut algae. So the advice is uh, at present um, not uh, to change uh, uh, what you eat during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So introduce early for infants and business as usual if you're pregnant, basically. Uh, yes. Great. Um, let's talk about anaphylaxis a bit more, Richard. Uh, we still see fatalities from anaphylaxis in Australia. It's, it's mind-boggling, really, um, particularly in young adults. What um, why is it happening and what can GPs do to help protect against fatalities with anaphylaxis? Um, yes, young adults are uh, at greatest risk uh, according to published data. They're at greatest risk in terms of car accidents, drownings. So they, we're not sure, uh, but um, at-risk behaviour is not carrying their EpiPens not reading labels. Uh, when you're younger, parents often read labels, but when you're 16, you're in a rush, um, you tend not to read the, the labels. This is a time often when they are experimenting with alcohol and sometimes perhaps recreational drugs. And I tell my patients, you know, if you're pissed, uh, then you don't read labels. Uh, you don't ask whether there is peanut uh, or fish or whatever you're allergic to. So it's really important that you start educating young adults early. And I don't mean, you know, at 14, let's teach you how to read labels. So you start sometimes from eight to 10 to say, you know, this is how mommy and daddy read labels to explain to them and to teach them how to make a risk assessment. May contain traces, should you take a risk. Uh, carrying EpiPens, you know, uh, they should start uh, having um, 
ownership on carrying the EpiPens rather than mom and dad carrying EpiPen and age 14 suddenly saying, now it's your turn. So they should from 10 start um, carrying um, or reminding moms and dads, where's my uh, medical kit that has the EpiPen? So it's very important in terms of education and GPs, I think, um, are also very important during this process when you see uh, patients, if, even if they come in for something different like their asthma, because asthma is a risk factor for fatal anaphylaxis. If you know that somebody uh, has asthma and has a risk of anaphylaxis, emphasizing to them, you need to control your asthma optimally. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, education and speaking uh, with young adults at, um, I guess, an age-appropriate level. So often six-year-olds, you tend to speak to parents, but eight, 10 onwards, I think it's really important engaging uh, the children and young adults in their care, making sure they've got the knowledge and education while you're carrying the EpiPen kissing. So somebody who's eaten a food that they are allergic to can potentially, you know, if they pash kiss, um, cause a significant reaction. Mm -hmm. So they need to then communicate to a potential partner uh, the risk. There's a lot there. And, it's you know, if you suddenly start at 14 saying all these things, it's a lot for a 14-year-old or 16-year-old uh, to take in. So this is, at 10, I talk about kissing. 12, I talk about, you know, risk of alcohol and discuss it again, you know, when they're uh, 14, 16, just emphasizing the information. Just one question, actually. On, it, it, you reminded me of something. When we, I mean, you often observe with uh, food allergies that people can have a reaction at one occasion and not at another. Mm -hmm. That can obviously send a, a mixed message about what their risk is, I suppose, particularly around whether a food's cooked or uncooked. Yes. Uh, for certain foods, uh, like egg and milk, if you bake it, it makes it less allergenic. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, there are other foods like prawns. If you cook it, it actually becomes more allergenic. Peanut, roasting a peanut makes it more allergenic, but sometimes boiling may make it either less allergenic or you know doesn't change it. The other thing that is a little bit in, hard to understand uh, is that 80% of people who die from anaphylaxis have mild, moderate reaction before the fatal reaction. Mm. So that's uh, also something like people say, you know, my reaction wasn't too bad. I'm not at risk of anaphylaxis. Unfortunately, we don't have a predictor for risk of anaphylaxis. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. You can, particularly in say a teenager who does, you know, experiments with a bit of food, they might falsely make the assumption they're no longer allergic, they've outgrown it, yeah. um, particularly if it's been cooked or presented in a different format. So reminding people that they're really, I mean, it's playing Russian roulette if they continue to consume. And for some of these young adults, um, we sometimes bring them into hospital and do a challenge. It's not to punish them, but if they really believe they can eat peanut, I'd rather bring them into a hospital and introduce peanut. If they're correct, I'm very happy for them. Mm. But the majority are not. I'd rather find out, and they find out they're still at risk in a hospital environment, rather than, you know, schoolies week somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in Rottnest or in Bali. Yeah. So that's something that sometimes we do challenges um, to perhaps demonstrate to people that they're still allergic. I don't do that often, but certainly if somebody says, I may take a risk and take peanut or fish, 
I might say, well, let's come to a hospital and let's try it. Uh, and you know, the majority with large positive skin tests and blood tests will react. And then the young adults will say, well, I better carry my EpiPen, Dr. Lowe, and I say, yep, you better do. <laughs> Richard, that's been a fascinating discussion about anaphylaxis. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And that's the end of the episode. Thank you.